the Lord. You can be seated. song is a gem the answer is because God didn't give you wings but uh, have you ever thought to yourself if things could only be different then I would be able to be the person that I really want to be or be able to do the things that I would really like to do or or if things were different for me I would have less stress or be less lonely or be happier or be more content fill in the blanks where does this mentality come from why does the other always look so much better? It seems to happen early on. Maybe some of you have noticed a toddler brawl in the middle of like a toy room filled with toys, but there's one toy that they both want. It's like the toddler sees, they're playing fine with a the toy, and then they see the other one with a toy, and they think, that's the one I want. I've got to have that toy right now. And then it's on. And you're like, hey, look, there's a hundred other toys. Like, take your pick. Where does that come from so early? Maybe we're born that way. I think our society also contributes to this reality, but it's hard to see from inside the water that we swim in. We're inundated with marketing messages of discontent. We have this old saying, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. In this passage, Paul is addressing this question for the specific Corinthian situation and by extension to us. The problem for us both is, is the idols of, idols of our culture which stand in the way of our affection and devotion to God. Paul addresses the Corinthian question 
but not in the way that they would expect. He responds to the Corinthians. He responds not to Corinthians or men or women or married or singles. He's responding to a kingdom of priests, a holy people, a people that have been bought with a price. And he's reminding them of who their Lord Jesus is. Lord, it's kind of an old word, it means boss. It means that those who are following Jesus have said, I'm going to follow you, you're the boss, you're the authority. These are children of God, disciples of Jesus. And he's reminding them that serving Jesus is the most fundamental thing to their human flourishing. Not the pattern of the good life described by Corinth or by Renton. Before we jump into this passage, however, I, I feel like as I was studying this passage, I feel like we need to address one of the most worshipped idols in our culture to help us even understand this passage better. So, of course, I have another video <laughs> for that one. So this one will help us dive into this understanding of our, of our uh, idolatry in our culture. Or take it another way. You can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theatre by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was something equally queer about the state of the sex instinct among us? I'm sorry to have to go into all these details, but I must. The reason why I must is that you and I, for the last 20 years, have been fed all day long on good, solid lies about sex. So that's, that's from uh, Mere Christianity, if you guys ever want to know. They made all these doodles based on uh, C.S. Lewis's chapters in that book. It's pretty interesting. So he makes a lot longer argument about sexual morality in our culture. But I think that's where we stand. We are sort of fed on a steady diet of lies about sex. And so it, it's confusing to us when we look back into the scripture, but even when we think about sex in our own lives. We have a distorted view brought to us in 4K over high-speed internet through media, culture, and education. And we carry around this idolatry with us, even access to sex as an idol through our, through our little idol portals that we carry with us, right? Now, a smartphone is not an idol. And people that worshipped idols were not as stupid as we assume that they were worshiping the little statue, thinking that this statue somehow is a god. They were worshiping the power behind that statue. They were worshiping the thing that that statue represents. And so we, when we engage in sexual idolatry, are worshiping the thing that we think sex represents for us. We think that, that sex sort of is this elevated thing that's the best thing ever that will fulfill all of your wildest dreams. But we're wrong. We're wrong. God created sex for a specific purpose, for a specific context, and it's a good thing that he made, but it's not an ultimate thing. Once we, once we start to put something in the place of God, it becomes an idol. And that's how a lot of us approach sexuality in our culture. 
So where does this, how does this work through the, the streams of consciousness that we're always interacting with? Well, it happens in education very early on. We had what we call the sexual revolution uh, in the 1960s in our, in our culture, which was, I guess, when some people think sexual revolution, they think good thing, and some people think horrible thing. And I think maybe it's a little bit of both. Um, but at the same time, in the 60s, there were, there were big problems with teenage pregnancy, with sexually transmitted diseases, even in the, the 40s and 50s. And people are saying, well, we need to address these problems. And so sex education in our, in our culture, in our educational system, was meant to address those problems in our culture. Beginning basically in like the late 60s, there were federally mandated sexual education guidelines that started to go out to, to all of culture. Um, so... Here's, here's some quotes from uh, a book called The Vision of the Anointed by Thomas Sowell. He says, uh, Sex education, although sex education programs have been sold to the public, to Congress, and to education officials as a way of reducing such tangible social ills as teenage pregnancy and venereal disease, many of the leaders of this movement have long, have long had a more expansive agenda. As a, Congress, a congressional committee report noted gingerly, the primary objective of federal efforts in family life and sex education have been to, re- to reduce unwanted pregnancy rates among teenagers. While the primary goal of most sex educators appears to be the encouragement of healthy, sexual, healthy attitudes about sex and sexuality. So this is a quote from a congressional report. I can, get the, I can find the, the reference if you, want, if you want to go read it. They, they, they say it's to help reduce these social ills but there seems to be a different agenda amongst the, the sex educators to create a healthy attitude about sex and sexuality. So in the words of an article in the Journal of School Health, a sex education presents, quote, an exciting opportunity to develop new norms. And Thomas Sowell says, only in the light of this agenda does it make sense that so-called sex education should be advocated to take place through the school years from kindergarten to college. When it could not possibly take that much time to teach basic or medical information about sex, what takes that long is a constant indoctrination of new attitudes. Why, why do kids need to learn about sex from kindergarten to college? When in like third grade, you pretty much learn it all from your friends anyways, right? Sex education... If its goal was to cut down on teenage pregnancy and, and sexually transmitted diseases, completely failed in the aggregate. It's easy to look at the numbers. From the 1960s, late 60s when it started, pregnancy rate and sexually transmitted diseases skyrocketed with the advent of, of sexual sex ed. So I'm not, here to, I'm not here to advocate a certain public policy. Or, and, and if you think I'm just sort of a crank uh, or a prude along these, along these lines... Um, there's actually an interesting movement that started called Sex Ed is Out. And it's a it's hashtag Sex Ed is Out, a movement of parents who are trying to have a sit-out on April 23rd of this year to protest the curriculum that Planned Parenthood has put into the sex, edu- sex education curriculum for their, for their students. It's interesting. You can look it up, sexedisout.com. So I'm not the only one. And this is... In this country, as well as in the UK, it's like a sort of an international movement that's saying, hey, we want to know what you're teaching because it's very secretive what's being taught in, 
being taught in the schools. So through education, we, we begin to indoctrinate ourselves with a sort of misunderstanding of sexuality. Through media. Now it's really too painfully obvious even to give examples. All I need to do is repeat the, the mantra of marketing that sex sells. Right? Everybody that wants to sell something has some commercial about some sexualized individual telling you that if you have this, you get me, or something like that. That's why on the internet, in the internet age, why this thing called clickbait works on people. Because they put a sexualized image and then people just mindlessly click on it. Movies have a huge impact on sexual morality. If movies don't influence behavior, marketers would not spend millions of dollars for product placement in the movies. And Bumblebee would not have been a Camaro. My experience in Ecuador is interesting. I had a Spanish teacher, um, Marisol. I went to her house for Spanish lessons, Spanish tutoring. And she would tutor other gringos like myself in Spanish. And so we would go to her house. And her parents, her family told her, don't let gringos in your house. Gringos are bad people. Well, where did they get that idea? Because all they've ever seen about gringos is movies. So imagine yourself, imagine someone judging you by American movies and thought, thinking of you as having that lifestyle. It's like, wait, no, we all, we all know movies are pretend. Like, people don't jump into bed. That, like, James Bond, you know, like, he would have rotted away from venereal diseases, like, after, like, three years. And this guy's been James Bonding for, like, 50 years straight. It's a joke. But we, we sort of, it's a, it's a fiction that we've just sort of accepted. But when other people see it, they're like, whoa, those gringos are bad people. Stay away from them. That's why when you travel in other countries, especially as a female, you need to be careful. Because in Ecuador, the guys would think, wow, gringas, <laughs> they're good to go. Like, look how sexually out they are. Like, they're just ready to have sex with anyone. I could just go talk to them and they'd probably start having sex with me. So the movies paint this just distorted picture of sexuality. You know, they would, they, would, they would argue, well, we need to condense the story and kind of get, you know, we need to portray romance. Well, there are movies that have portrayed romance without a lick of sexuality. It is possible. <clears throat> so sex and sexuality are worshipped in our culture as idols. It's something that just takes place in our society that we are sort of swimming in that water and we probably have like a little idol of sexuality at, at some point in our lives. Tim Keller's excellent definition of, of an idol bears repeating here. What comes to mind that a thing, if, what comes to mind when you're defining an idol is it's a thing that if you lost could mean that you would almost lose the will to live. An idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, to meaning of life, or to your identity. Anything you love more than God. Idols are not bad things in and of themselves, but to look for them for salvation, for power, for advancement, for fulfillment in a part of your life. That's idolatry. It's a disordered love. It's out of order. So sex comes to mind here in our, in our culture. So why do, why do I even need to say all that before we talk about this passage? Because I think our distorted understanding of sex, that we place an undue importance on its place will reflect on how we understand this passage um, as if this passage is a teaching about sex and marriage. 
We've allowed ourselves to believe unbiblical ideas about sex which obscure the beauty and freedom of what Paul is saying here. Paul's giving advice based on what they wrote, not giving a marriage seminar. So here's what I think the main point of this whole chapter. We're going to talk about this chapter for three more weeks, two more weeks after today. It's not about sex. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35, I think sums up like the, the overall perspective of this chapter. He says, I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place a restriction on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. I think that sums up the main idea that Paul is trying to get across to us. And that help, that's the paradigm to help us understand what he says before and after that. So with this in mind, let's look at the different parts of this first part of, of 1 through 16. It breaks down into sort of three divisions. He's talking to three different groups, so to speak. 1 to 7, he's talking to the married, okay? And, they're, and, they're, and about, about their sexual relations, but not just about sex. In 8 through 9, he's talking to widowers and widows. And in 10 through 11, he's talking to Christian married couples and other married couples. So 1 through 7, <clears throat> my subtitle is this, Prayer Takes Precedence Over Sex. I bet you've never had that thought. Now, regarding the question you asked in your letter, Paul says, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations, <clears throat> but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to the wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God uh, of one kind or another. So the other thing that's happening in Corinthians is that we're shifting gears in how Paul is presenting information. First, he started out by reminding them of the gospel and addressing some of the issues that he'd heard about through whoever was, was communicating to him. Now he's taking the letter that they wrote to, to him and he's taking specific questions that they asked and he's answering them. The problem that we have when we, when we start to dig into this is that they didn't use quotation marks in the Greek, okay? So when he writes one of their questions, it might just seem like he's writing it. But what he's doing is saying, here's what you wrote. You wrote this, and now I'm going to respond to it. But there's no quotation marks to kind of delineate that for us. We've come to understand those things by the study of textual criticism, and it's pretty clear to us now, although some people in the past have sort of taken this not understanding that or, or with an agenda to make Paul out to be some sort of sexual or sex hater, uh, which he's not. So this, this statement in the very, in the very first... Uh, Verse there, he says, now regarding the questions that you asked in your letter. Okay, he basically says, now, now about what you wrote. He says, yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations. So people have said, well, see, Paul hates sex. He says, you should, you should just, and he doesn't say sexual relations. Our, our translation, we're trying to do our best to get across the point here. Because literally in the Greek says, for a man not to touch a woman. But it's an idiom that means celibacy. That's what, that's what they understood when he said that. Just means, so he said, yeah, it's good to be celibate. So they wrote that to him. They're, they're saying, Paul, isn't it good to be celibate? And so he quotes what they're writing. He kind of writes it back to them and says, yes, it is good to be celibate. 
But, so people have said, Paul is saying, yes, it's, it's good to be celibate. He's, as if he would be writing to a married couple and saying, yeah, it's good to be celibate. So, but this is what's happening is married couples are writing to Paul and saying, isn't it better for us to be, isn't it more spiritual for us to be celibate? Remember, we've talked about this sort of spirituality that they're pursuing that's disconnected from their bodies. And they're saying our body is not important. Caleb, Caleb talked about this. Like our bodies are just, we just fulfill the appetites of our physical body. It doesn't matter for our spirituality, for our soul. And Paul's saying, you're not, you're not, you're not a dichotomy like that. You're one, you're one thing, your spirit and body together. Your spirituality is, is expressed through your body. And so, yes, it's good to be celibate, but, and then he, then he talks about marriage. So their question is not, hey, Paul, can you teach us about sex and marriage? No. Their question is, Paul, what's the best way to serve Jesus in our marriage? That's what their question is about. And should we abstain from sex to do that? Because we know that things about our body make us less spiritual. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. That's not true. So Paul's addressing their questions. And it's, it's interesting to see the way that he responds to them. So understanding that the question is not what is the optimal sex life for married couples and how can married couples, the question is how can married couples best serve Jesus? Is it better to remain celibate? So Paul here is addressing also, as we look through this passage, this is where context is king. Context rules the meaning of these episodes and these things that he's talking about because now he is not addressing all of humanity. He's addressing, he's addressing married couples in Corinth that asked him if they should remain celibate to be more spiritual. So he's not addressing all of mankind. He affirms the idea that remaining celibate is, good, is a good thing. But he reminds them of the covenant agreement that they entered into in marriage. So verse 2 needs to be clearly understood as well. We just kind of traipse through these things and say, well, see. And it also, I think, it begins to, to help us understand another imbalanced view of marriage that we have, especially in the church. Maybe you could call it marriage idolatry. This sort, this sort of idea that basically everyone needs to be married. Like, that's the goal, right? Like, like we kind of think in our culture, like, every book needs to be made into a movie. That's like the book's ultimate goal. It's not true. It's not true. Everyone do, everyone's not called to be married. Everyone doesn't need to be married to improve themselves. Paul might even be saying marriage might not improve your situation if you're trying to follow Jesus. We'll get to that next week. But in verse 2, he says, Yes, it's true to remain celibate, but because of all the sexual immorality, the, the word porneia around, around you, it's better for a, a man to have his own wife and a woman to have her own husband. And so we kind of take this passage and say, see, everyone should get married. That is not what that passage says. That's not what that verse says. Paul is not saying, because of all the sexuality, that people should get married. Okay? That's a distortion and a misunderstanding of what he's saying in, in this passage right here. And I think we see that because we think sex is such a good thing. It's, it's the best thing ever. It's not. It's just a little thing that's made for a certain context. Paul's addressing married couples who have covenanted together in marriage before God, the one who created sex. To have means to have sex with in this, in this passage, okay? It's like the, in the Hebrew word, to know, like Abraham knew his wife. It's not like, yeah, he knows her name, Sarah. It means that they had sex, 
okay? In this, in this verse too, it means to have your own husband or to have your own wife means to have sex with them, okay? So it doesn't mean, because of all the sexual immorality, you should get married. That's not what it means. It's saying to married couples that are already married, and this makes sense in light of what came before us. Caleb talked about the prostitution issue that was going on in their society. So in light of this idea that prostitution was so normal, that this idea of fulfilling your sexual urges were just a, a bodily appetite, you just stop by the prostitute on the way home, just like you're going to stop by a cafe. And Paul's bringing correction to this, saying each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. That's who you should have sex with, not prostitutes, not anybody else. So it's very important for us to try to understand these passages for what they mean and not kind of import our distorted understandings on them, whether it's sex or marriage. This statement, obvious as it is, makes sense in light of this, this idea of prostitution. And Caleb reminded us last week that God designed marriage for two to become one And this certainly refers to the sex act, but also a holistic intimacy that Eric referred to like a couple weeks ago. It's more than just physical intimacy that the covenant of marriage is is all about. So Keller says in the same way, marriage is a covenant, one that creates a place of security for vulnerability. This is a great way of understanding the marriage covenant. It's It's a covenant, an agreement between two people witnessed by their community that creates a place of vulnerability, a place of security, a place of security for vulnerability. When you're standing naked in front of one, someone, you're very vulnerable to them, right? You don't have your armor on. But though the covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the covenant. The covenant will grow stale unless we continually revisit and reenact it. Sex is a covenant renewal ceremony for marriage. The physical reenactment of the inseparable oneness in all other areas, economic, legal, personal, psychological, created by the marriage covenant. Sex renews and revitalizes the marriage covenant. That's from Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods. So in the biblical view, sex is a part of marriage. Sex as a part of marriage is a serious covenant between two people witnessed by their community. It's not a thing in and of itself. It's not a pastime. It's not something that exists outside of that context. It's, not, it's, it's, it's an unhealthy thing. It's distorted. It's disordered if it's taken outside of that security, of that place that's made for it. So Paul now gets super radical in their culture, and he says, the wife has authority over her husband's body, not just the other way around. Because when he says the husband has authority over the wife's body, they'd be like, yep. But then he flips it around and says, no, the wife also has authority over the husband's body. And they would have... At that point, they would have sort of choked on their cup of noodles or wherever they were eating at that point. It's a picture of mutual submission and love in the sexual relationship. Paul says, stop defrauding one another or cheating one another in this area of your marriage. We translate it as deprive. It means the covenant agreement is the agreement to mutually love and care for each other in, in, in all areas. And there's a mutuality here that... that uh, God is correcting in their culture and I, and I hope in our culture as well. The question for married couples is, do you know whether you are filling your, fulfilling your spouse's need? Is your sex life one of mutuality and self-giving love or something else? Are you providing protection from temptation to your spouse in this area? 
I would add that although mutuality and self-giving love is called for here, it does not mean that husbands and wives have the, are equal in all areas when it comes to their sex drive. Husband and wives are different, and they have different attitudes and different appetites, and marriage is about getting to know that. And it's about knowledge. Intimacy sort of uh, assumes knowledge, assumes a growing knowledge about one another. So every person is different. And in marriage, the idea is to grow in understanding the other through love. So that intimacy in every way is growing. And by the way, the goal of marriage is not to have sex. I mean, it's just, sorry to let you down. So now Paul transitions to the next group. For widowers and widows, stay unmarried. So in verse 8 and 9, he says, I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am, but if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Okay? I'm going to make a, a, like a, an argument about what he means here by one of the words. See, and I want you to follow along with me, and then Brian, Brian can correct me if, if, if I'm wrong here. So here's a quote from a... From a, from a Commentary. Some think that Paul has in mind especially widowers, since the word is used in conjunction with widows. Okay, widower means a male who has lost his wife to death. A widow is, is a, a female who has lost her husband, right? Is that, that clear? Who would also fall into the category of unmarried. So Fee holds to this view and suggests that the, the unmarried or demarried term describes Paul's use of the term in chapter 7, since it is applied to the divorced woman in 7.11, and it and sets it in contrast to virgins in 7.34. So in this view, Paul probably does not have in mind never married, since his address to this group, more, he addresses this group more specifically in the, later in the chapter in 7.25-38. This understanding of the term gives a balanced symmetry to the chapter 7, and 7.1-16 addresses those presently or formerly married, while 725 through 38 addresses those never married. Here, and here, here's, what, here's, here's my argument. Paul says to those who are, the, we translate in English to those who are unmarried or widows, okay? And he uses two terms there, a male, a masculine term, and a feminine term. And the term widows, we got, like it means female women who have lost their husband either through death or having been left in their culture. But the other term is, is uh Agamos, it's a male term that means unmarried males, unmarried men, okay? So when Paul combines these two ideas, agamos is not necessarily the, uh, a term for widower or an, a man that has been left in his marriage or, or a man that has been divorced. But I would say that this is what Paul has in mind here based on what he's arguing through this whole chapter. So my point in this He's talking to a set of people who have been married and later talks to those who have not been married. He uses this term agamos, which is unmarried, but he never uses it as a, he never used it as a term for someone who has never been married. He uses a term that, that we translate as virgin, okay? So in, in 734, it's very clear. He says, his interests are divided. In the same way, and here's where he uses these two terms, a woman who is no longer married and then the next, who has never been married, okay? So he uses this idea of someone who is no longer married versus someone who has not been married, like a virgin, okay? So the two terms are, are 
contrasted with each other at that point. So in that, what I'm saying is this idea of unmarried doesn't mean they've never been married. It's not that category of person. Okay, so that sounds a bit pedantic. Why, why am I like squabbling over this, this idea? Um, I think it's important to us because what we do is we look at this passage and we say, if you're burning with lust, no matter who you are, you should get married. Paul's not talking to people who have never been married. Okay, so I would make the case this doesn't apply to a single person who has not been married. Someone who's not currently engaging in or having has has engaged in sex this is somebody who has never been married this is somebody who has already been married and has been left and in their culture this is what we we understand it was very easy to divorce one another for the female or the male they could just leave there was no fault divorce in in their society they could just walk out and say i divorce you and it was done there was no penalty there was no fines Whatever happened, they just leave and, and they're done. The man could just leave his wife. The woman could just leave her husband and, the, and so put an end to their marriage. So this category of person was actually a fairly normal person in their society, especially in the church. So these people that Paul is talking to here are those who have been married in the past. They've lived a married lifestyle and they've been left and now they're currently single. They're unmarried, having been married in the past. And now he says to them, it's better if you stay single. But if you feel like you just can't live as a single person, then it's better for you to get married again. It's better to remarry. Okay? So I think, and I'm guilty of like not having correctly understood and studied this passage and just told people like, if you're burning with lust, you should just get married. That, that is not what this little section is, is telling a single person who's never been married. So I, I just want to understand that because Paul's going to address this, this more as, as we go on. And I'm sort of leaving out this idea of singleness because I want to talk about that next week. He keeps saying it's better if you remain unmarried, which is interesting. So this is not a, a, a statement to those who have never been married. It's not saying to the, to the single person, it's better for you to get married or it's a way to protect yourself. If you, if you face sexual temptation, you should just get married. So, that being said, he says uh, in verse 7, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So marriage and all that come with it are a gift from God to some, not all. Singleness and all that come with it are a gift from God to some, not all. God has given some people the gift of celibacy or singleness, and God has given others the gift of marriage and family, both appointed by God to build up his church and glorify him in culture. Everyone can seek God, and the marriage singleness question will be answered. It's not a prioritization of our sex drive and then God's will. That's backwards. Paul's not making the argument that if your sex drive is just too great, you need to go get married. Does that make sense? He, he's saying God is, gives each one a gift. So, lastly, Paul addresses those who are married. And I'm just going to read this passage in full. There's kind of two parts to it, 10 and 11, and then 12 through the end. So in 10 and 11, he, he seems to be talking to believers that are in the church that are married. They're both believers. He says, but for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband. 
But if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. Now I'll speak to the rest of you as though, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If, if a Christian man has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a Christian woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to continue to living with her, she must not leave him. For the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage and the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. For God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? <coughs> Excuse me. So he says, I have a command from the Lord. It means that he's quoting or repeating what Jesus told him, okay? Or what we, we actually can read in Mark, Matthew, and Luke when Jesus talks about divorce. So he says to the married Christian couples, they're addressed with this command from the Lord. And he quotes Jesus, don't leave. <laughs> don't get divorced. Both men and women are addressed here. In the Corinthian culture, they could easily just walk out of their marriage, like I said, husband or wife. So Paul's referencing Jesus' teaching, which is that God does not command divorce, but he permitted it. It's not the best. Divorce is not the best thing for you. It's not the ideal. The grass is not greener on the other side of that fence. In cases of sexual morality. Divorce is permitted, but Jesus says to divorce a wife for no reason. So in the Jewish culture, they could say, oh, my breakfast is cold. Here's a certificate of divorce. Get out of here. Like that trivial. So Jesus says, when you, when you engage in that practice you guys have, you cause your wife to commit adultery by divorcing her for that reason. So this, this idea that they could just divorce for no reason, Jesus completely shuts that down. Uh, so when you, when you do that to, to a woman, you're causing her to commit adultery and then you go out and remarry and you're committing adultery because you didn't, your marriage didn't end for, for any reason that God permits. So then, then now Paul turns to those who are in the church and it appears, it seems, or I wouldn't say it seems, these, people who, these are people who live in Corinth who started to believe in Jesus, but it was only one of them in their marriage, right? They were already married, but one of them started following Jesus, husband or wife. So they've got a mix of people that are in their church who, are, uh, who have a, either an a, a unbelieving husband at home or an unbelieving wife at home, and, and they, don't, they don't agree on, on that. Um, so he's addressing this crowd of people that are married. <clears throat> so I, one thing I want to point out, first of all, he says, the believing spouse makes your household holy interesting the way he does that he's basically coming against I think some of the some of the way we think about the world in a sense like the world is going to overcome our faith the world is stronger than than Jesus the world is going to corrupt who we are as believers and it's certainly true the world is that's its full-time job to try to corrupt people and steal kill and destroy but it's not stronger than our faith. Jesus says, it's your faith that has overcome the world. Take heart. He that's in us is greater than he that's in the world. And Paul is saying here and reminding us, when a family, a, a mixed family, where one is a believer and one is not, 
the believer's not at risk. It's the unbeliever who's at risk. You're going to lose that unbelieving state because the Holy Spirit is working through the person who's following Jesus and they bring holiness to that household. They bring a, they bring a spiritual strength with them that is not going to be overcome. I think we take sometimes a too negative view or maybe ascribe too much power to the enemy or to the world and say, oh, it's going to overcome our faith. No, Jesus didn't pull us out of this world for a reason. We're in the world, but we're not of it. We're in the world so that we can shine the light of Christ and glorify God through the power that he's given us. And even in a marriage, when one is, when is, when one is unbelieving, one is believing, Paul says that there's holiness in that household because of that. That's pretty cool. That was encouraging to me as I read that because I think I've kind of had that, that mindset. And again, Paul is not writing an encouragement to the believer to end this relationship. He's actually saying, don't end the relationship. If you're a believer, don't end the relationship because your spouse might come to Christ through your presence in their life. He's not guaranteeing it. He's not saying, I guarantee that if you stay in that relationship, your spouse is going to start believing in Jesus. But he says, how do you know that they won't? Peter says the same thing in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. In the same way, wives must accept the authority of their husbands. Even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words, and they will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. There's something about a character, the character of Christ that's formed in us when people see that transformation. They see the person that they used to know is different, is more like Jesus. That's very attractive to people. It's very winsome when people see the new life in Christ. So it's not the world that overcomes our faith, but faith which overcomes the world. And just as a side note, this is talking to people who became believers after they were married. The, the scripture is pretty clear that if you're seeking to get married, you shouldn't seek to marry someone who doesn't believe, who's, who's not following Christ. And if you think about it, it doesn't make sense because what you're really, you're saying, like, my core identity is who I am in Christ. This informs, like, everything about who I am. This is the closest relationship I have. And if you're tempted to sort of downplay that, to attract this person to you, you're defrauding them, you're cheating, you're tricking them, and you're deceiving yourself. Later on, are you going to just turn up the volume again on, on Jesus, like after you got him? Like, it just doesn't make sense to go down that road. So back to the beginning. The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. The question the Corinthians are asking is not like, is not about sex, marriage, divorce, as much as they're asking, how can we best serve Jesus? That's where these questions come from. And Paul shares scriptural guidelines that God has established in marriage, but marriage is not the best way to serve Jesus. Celibacy is not the best way to serve Jesus. Divorce is not the best way to serve Jesus. Wishing you were someone else or somewhere else is not the best way to serve Jesus. Serving Jesus starts from right, right from where you are. Paul says in verse 17, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you, as the Lord has placed you. And rem remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. So this is not, and this is not a capitulation or a fatalism like, well, this is just my lot in life. It's to begin to trust God right where you're at. Trusting God 
is to learn his word and what it says about you and who you are in the situation that you're in. It's growing in your new identity in Christ. The Corinthians begin to let their culture sort of invade what God had said about them. And that began to distort their perspective on how to follow him. They conjectured that because some in their culture thought celibacy was more spiritual, then they should probably pursue that and try to be closer to Jesus through that. Paul corrects them with God's design for mutual submission and embodied spirituality. True spirituality does not discount the body. It is expressed in and with our bodies. True spirituality is submission to God, accepting the gospel of Jesus and becoming a new creature, a temple of the Holy Spirit. So marriage is about serving Jesus. Serving Jesus is a growing understanding of his word. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. You guys have probably heard it before. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the person of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's what the word of God does for us as we follow Jesus. All of those things. It's profitable for us to understand that. We approach the word with an attitude of submission, desiring to know God and to serve him. So serving Jesus is the main point, not serving ourselves. I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35. The reminder, Paul says, I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. Serving Jesus is contentment, contentment with what we've been given and a striving for more of Jesus so we can glorify him. Serving Jesus is peace amidst the storms of life, freedom while being enslaved or employed, growing an understanding of our calling and gifting, and whether married or single. Psalm 23, I think, paints a wonderful picture of this. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that brings correction and reproof and training, Lord, so that we would be equipped to walk in all the good works that you prepared for us to walk in. I pray that you would help us understand, Lord Jesus, right where we're at, what is the best way to serve you? What are the things in our lives that are distractions from focusing on you? What are, the, what are the places and the ways, Lord, that need to be discarded, that need to be cut away so that we can more clearly reflect who you are in our lives? Help us, Father, to live out the spiritual reality of our lives and our bodies. Help us, Father, to understand the place that you've called us to be. I pray for those who are married, Father, would you strengthen their relationship? Would you help them to reflect on the responsibilities that they have 
toward one another and toward you. And I pray that the marriages in our church, Lord, would bring glory to you and would be a place of discipleship. Father, I pray for those who are single, that they would have the strength, Father, to continue to hear from you and understand what you're calling them to. I pray they they would overcome the world and the lies, Father, that tell them that they're incomplete or that they're not, they're somehow not a whole person. Lord Jesus, give them a clear understanding of the gifting that you've, that you've given them at this time and place in their life. Give them the strength to serve you in the best way possible, Lord, without any distractions. Father, I pray for our church that we, Lord, would submit ourselves to you and discover where we as a body have accepted cultural norms or have distorted your perfect word or have turned away from your, from your profitable guidelines, Lord. Realign us, I pray, as a church with your word. Help us, Holy Spirit. Knit us together. Give us the strength that only you can give. Give us the unity that comes from you, Holy Spirit, that we would be walking according to your giftings, Lord, and we would be bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives so that we could truly manifest you, Lord Jesus, and glorify your name and be a place that attracts people to come and know you. In Jesus' name, amen. So every week, we come back to the table. Every week, we, we mess up. And we need to be reminded that Jesus' body was broken for us. That his blood was shed. Once for all time to wash away our sins. But it's we that need to remember to renew the covenant in our minds. To be reminded of what he has offered.